Support. You're listening to the arts titty. <laughs> oh my god! You're listening to the arts report on CITR 101.9 FM. <laughs> We're broadcasting from UBC's campus on the unceded, ancestral, and traditional Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I am your host Sarah Unju, and I'm really excited to be back. It is 2021, and let's hope it is so much better than 2020. I mean, it didn't start off the best if you've been following the American news, but you know what? I feel like it's already better than 2020 because nothing's on fire yet. If we think about it, last year 2020 did start with the Australian wildfires, so the world was quite literally on fire. So at least, at least that's not happening right now. You know, look at it on the bright side. Yeah. Okay, so today's show, we have two interviews and a review. We're going to start with Nico's review and then Adam PSA break. Our our breaks are really fast, so you don't need to go anywhere. Also, they're really fun too. And then after the break, we're going to have Phoebe's interview. Phoebe is one of our correspondents who did a review in the beginning of the term last like in 2020 but she was busy so she wasn't able to contribute as much as for example me or Nico who has a review today and but she's back and that is very exciting I'm really happy that she's back so and then after Phoebe's interview at NPSA work and then we have my interview something I would like to mention is that I did my interview at 1 a.m for me so if I sound a little sleepy, a little out of it, that is definitely the reason why. I am really sorry. I did my best. I tried my best to, you know, sound not sleepy and awake, but yeah, girl was tired, so not much I could do. Also, the reason why it was 1 a.m. for me is because, um, not because we're crazy and we want to interview people after midnight, no. Uh, it's because I am not in Canada right now, even though we're broadcasting this show from Vancouver. It is not being recorded in Vancouver. It is actually currently being recorded in Turkey. I am in Turkey back home with my family. Um, COVID really took a toll on my mental health and I needed to be back for a while to be with my family and that's what I'm doing right now. So until the end of January, I'm here, but then I'll be back in February and something something exciting is that we might actually be doing live shows starting February. So that should be exciting. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Also, I will not be popping back in in between the recordings. So 
when we start now, we're going for it. No stopping. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy. I hope you like the first show of 2021. And I hope you'll be back next week for our next show and every week after that, basically until we run out of content, you know? Well, okay. <laughs> I don't have much else to say. I'm so glad my dog isn't barking right now. He was on a barking rage like for the past 10 minutes and he just stopped and I was able to record this. What a wonderful day. What a miracle. Okay, so we're starting off with Nico's interview. Nico's interview. What was that? I don't know. Anyways, enjoy. Hi, my name is Nico Martin Mechino and I'm happy to be back on this new year of 2021 and I hope everyone had a safe Christmas holiday and a safer New Year's holiday and I hope everyone started their their new year better off than last year and I wish everyone the best of luck and and hopefully uh yeah we can come out of this pandemic a little bit more experienced a little bit more grateful and with a little bit more energy ready to go in life um now on the note of this opera Vancouver's opera digital season has offered us this second show of the season, which is called Amal and the Night Visitors, and that is what today I will be reviewing. Now, in Vancouver Opera's website, the overview, overview mentions that since its Christmas Eve premiere in 1951, this story has warmed the hearts of audiences around the world. Three kings, following the star to Bethlehem, stop for shelter at home for Amal, a poor, crippled shepherd boy, and his widowed mother. Amal offers his own simple gift to the wondrous child, and then a miracle happens. Making this production extra special is a casting of Maestros Dalia's son, Andres. Now, the maestro is the music director and the piano and his full name is Leslie Dalla. Now, his son is a protagonist. He is Amal, and his name is Andres Dalla. Now, the mother is played by Stephanie Trichu. Sorry, Stephanie, if I pronounce that wrong. King Casper is played by Sergio Augusto. King Malacor is by Jason Cook. And King Balthasar by Ma Michael McKinnon. The director is Sarah Jane Pelsler. Set in costume designer is Patrick Rizzotti, and the COVID safety officer is Leah Gazelle Field. Now, this opera was composed by Gian Cardo Menotti, first performed and commissioned by NBC as a live broadcast on December 24th, 1951. Now, I'll go a little bit into the composer himself. Gian Carlo Menotti was born on July 7th, 1911, and died February 1st, 2007. He was an Italian-American composer and a librettist who wrote the classical Christmas opera Amo and the Night Visitors, along with over two dozen other operas intended to appeal to popular taste. He won a Pulitzer Prize twice for The Consul, 1950, and for the Saint of Blacker Street, 1955. He also founded the festival Due du Mondi, Festival of Two Worlds, in Spoleto in 1958, and its American counterpart, Spoleto Festival USA, in 1977. Now, mentioned earlier in that overview by the Vancouver Opera website, um, this, is, this is a religious opera. This is about the coming of Christ, 
This is about the kings, the three kings, passing by and encountering a poor crippled boy who used to be a shepherd and who are in a, in a moment of, of despair. Um, the, because the boy is crippled, he can't work as a shepherd and his mother is a widow and they're, they're poor and they really have no means to provide for each other. And the mother is worried of the future, definitely worried about how she's gonna provide for her son and what's her son gonna do. Um, now the son is is a young boy, and um, you know he's kind of still in in that moment where he's just uh, you know he's he tries to see the light side of of life, and uh, he's constantly stargazing, and constantly um, you know claiming these these things that his his mother has uh, trouble with with fathoming. Um, for example, he told her once that uh, there was a big star in the sky, and it seemed so big that you know it was uh it was almost tangible in that moment that he could go up and grab it and his mother doesn't believe him and she's tired of these kind of um fallacies you know the kind of these illusions that her son keeps keeps saying and, and you know it, it builds up more of the worry that uh, she has because uh he's living in and she believes that he's living in this in this world that doesn't exist and he's not uh he's not in reality and uh that's the uh, that's where we find them at the beginning of, of the opera and and then the three kings come along and the child sees them, Amal sees them and tries to inform his mother but his mother again doesn't believe him you know because he goes to her and he says mom there's king there's a king outside and she's trying to sleep and she's kind of like please just uh just go to sleep just relax I don't I don't want to hear this right now until finally there's a knock on the door and the mother tells uh tells her son to go see who it is and he re reiterates the same thing that there's a king outside and now there's three kings and his mom is is again a little annoyed now that uh, he keeps playing on with the with the supposed lie now uh, eventually the three kings make the appearance and the mother realizes that his her son was uh, telling the truth all along so she she goes and she tells uh, her son to wake up the other shepherds so that they could offer these kings something because they have nothing to offer. And uh, in the meantime, the the kings in itself, all three of them are eccentric to a certain uh, point. And um, you know it's it's entertaining. The opera has a sort of comedic, innocent side to it, as well as a, a dramatic side and uh, also a, a highly religious side which is where I'll, I'll talk about next. Um, there is one part of, of the opera, especially in the middle, that I really loved. And um, it was because of the music. Now, the music in this opera is something that I definitely was impressed by. And in one of the interviews that the Vancouver Opera digital website offers, uh, they talked to the, the pianoist and uh, the musical director, Leslie Dalla, and he kind of gives us a little insight into the actual uh, composition of of the opera. And he mentions that the opera, the music itself is gentle, it's tender, and it also has this sort of archaic sound to it, this sort of uh, unknown, this sort of, this sort of, um, I guess I could best explain it with the entrance of, of the kings. There's, there's this, uh, this technique that Minotti, the composer, uses, and he uses the technique called organo, which uses parallel intervals and gives this kind of this, this, old, this old feeling to, to the sound. 
And uh, it's just a great way to deliver the, the introduction to these three kings. And the music for me was what left me in awe of this because um, it really it really attaches the storyline um, to the effect that it has with the audience. And now the storyline is is a religious one. It's a, it's about the coming of Jesus. It's about these three kings going to find this 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 deity, this this God, this holy being. Um, and the star is is leading them, of course. Um, now this song that left this great impression on me. It's so beautiful. It's called "Have You Seen This Child." And there is a certain glorious attention to the humane sentiment of the religious moral of the story, like I mentioned earlier, which is the coming of Christ. And uh, that coming is is a design for salvation. We all know, at least most of us um, might know the story of, of Christ and what happened and, and what he the effect that he's had on uh, the human history since then. And I'm speaking purely... Um, in the, in the perspective that I'm, I'm not religious. I was Catholic. I left the church a long time ago, but uh, nonetheless, there, there was something glorious about this performance, about this opera because of the music and because of the lyrics. Um, now the glorious attention that I'm speaking about is clear. When King Balthasar asks Amal's mother in this song, have you seen a child? Have you seen a child, the color of wheat, the color of dawn, his eyes are mild, his hands are those of a king, as a king he was born. Now that is that is quite poetic, very poetic, and what I found most impressive was the juxtaposition that it offered. Um, because Amal's mother, she responds saying that she knows this king, or she knows this child, she knows the one that you kings are searching for, and they get excited because uh, then that might be a shortcut to the way to get into to their their goal, and she says the child is my son, and uh, she reiterates what what uh, the kings say that he has you know that he's the color of wheat that he's the color of dawn that his his hands are are the hands of a king, and uh, it is beautiful because it just shows a mother just the the characteristic of being a mother and everything. But uh, it also brings us this great juxtaposition between Amal and Jesus. And um, in hindsight, it contributes to the religious theme of the coming of Christ and that we are all children of God in, in this perspective of, uh, of the opera. Again, remember, this is, a religious, this is a religious performance. But nonetheless, it is something that leaves an effect on you, whether you have a secular sentiment or whether you have a religious sentiment it still will have a profound uh, effect on you. And that is all thanks to, to the music and the composition, the performance and everything that they've done. Um, now, one thing that I do want to mention as well is that the set was beautifully outlined. Now, Amal, like I mentioned, he's a, he's a shepherd. So it was the, the floor of the stage was fairly minimalistic, but the ceiling, the sky was beautiful it was an array of stars and it just illuminated everything and at the beginning it was only just the sky that you could see and then the lights arose and and, and illuminated the stage but nonetheless it was the sky that always catches your attention and i can only imagine what it would be like to see in person because online it looked amazing so i definitely want to give uh Props to the, the set and costume designer, Patrick Rizzotti, and I know the director as well, Sarah Jane Pelzer, also uh, applauded him for, for his job because uh, he, was, he found a way to definitely build um, this set that was also COVID-friendly, 
but also intimate at the same time, which is something that I could see being very hard um, given the situation. Now, that is one thing that I also want to mention is due to the COVID situation, uh, a lot of the actors, they didn't touch each other like they might have if uh, we weren't in a COVID uh, predicament right now. But um, due to the set, they were still able to create this intimacy and this uh, sort of uh, evolution of the characters as, 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 as the play got to go on to, to be more connected within each other. Um, now, also, there were some touching in the performance, but there was a disclosure at the beginning of the performance by the director saying that if you see some of the actors touching, it's because they live in the same household. So they wanted to make that clear. So for anyone that actually watches this, just uh, you'll, you'll see the disclosure as well. But it was really interesting that they really uh, that they mentioned that at the beginning. And then you and as you notice it while you're watching it, it's uh, it really just shows how much effort and how well they actually did in the overall performance. Um, now, for myself, I gave this uh, this play or this opera, I gave it a total of. Uh, 7.5 to 8 out of 10 rating and I only give that even though it made gave such a great impression to me it's just you know opera in itself is a grandiose is the extreme it's it's uh it's for myself my own idiosyncrasy sees opera as a way to achieve the divine um in the sense that I've always just seen the the voices of opera singers very just we're out of out of out of the out of this world you know it's just uh, it's so powerful it's so it just resonates with you just because of its vocals it's it's something that is hard to put into words and um opera this opera wasn't wasn't necessarily one of those big grandiose one with us with the set and with the, the costume and you know also with the, the actual uh, lyrics itself it was more just toned down and more intended on uh, to be on the message of giving of love of the, of the coming of of christ and um of giving back and everything like that so i don't want to give away the the opera but uh like i mentioned or like was mentioned in the overview overview at the beginning Amal, at the end, he offers a simple gift to to Christ, and and then a miracle happens, and uh, that's that's what I'll end this on, it's just so it gives a little bit of interest to the people, so they can check it out. Because for myself, I really enjoyed this opera. It was only about fifty minutes, but uh, the actors did a great job. The mother was a great actress. The Amal himself too did a great job as well. He had a hard. He had a couple hard moments uh, lyrically. He had to do, hit some really high pitches, but he performed well. And uh, more more than anything, I was impressed by this. So I'm I'm really grateful that I started off the year with reviewing this this opera. And if you're interested in opera, I definitely definitely recommend that you go check this one out. Subscribe to the Vancouver Opera Digital Season and uh, check out Amal and his mother and the Three Kings. So that is my review of the Amal and the Night Visitors for the second performance of the Vancouver Opera's digital season. My name is Nico Martin Mechino, and thank you for listening. This quarter magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theatre, Discorder lives. Favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theatre. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder magazine or at rickshawtheatre.com.
feeling lost in the lonely, meaningless cyberweb. Looking to connect with other users? Then plug in to a CITR collective. Meet users who are compatible with your interests and passions. CITR's mainframe offers nine unique collectives. News, arts, accessibility, sports, persons of color, indigenous, gender empowerment, LGBTQ2SIA+, and music affairs. CITR collectives are where you can make great radio, great friends, and avoid the abject loneliness of life in the cyber void. Hey, this is Phoebe Telfer here, and I am thrilled to be introducing to everyone uh, Norman Young, who I'll be talking to today a little bit about his upcoming work and the state of theatre in the current climate. Um, hey, Norman. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, I guess. I mean, all things considered. Um, I'm actually surprisingly uh, busy. I have been for months. And I guess I, uh, I, I, I'm, of course, framing this in the context of the pandemic, yeah. that uh, there's actually a lot of activity uh, for me as a writer and uh, a little bit as an actor. Not so much. I'm, I'm very busy with, with my writing right now, which is, of course, easier to do than the acting, simply because I, I can just write from home. Uh, but yes, I've managed to keep busy, but I have to say, I right from the beginning, I was a big proponent of the whole, you know, you, if you just want to sit around and, and, you know, spend time alone and whatever to, you know, be happy and, and get through this strange time is all good. Like the whole thing about is now when you're going to write your novel <laughs> is now when you're going to write King Lear. I don't mean to me. I mean, that's what a lot of the world was kind of thinking like, all right, this is the time that I can, you know, finally do my life's work. Cool. If that's what you know, uh, people feel happy doing, but I also feel like if you just want to sit around and if you need to just chat with friends or even just spend time alone, that's, I fully support that. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is, yes, I'm, I'm happily busy. It's a, it's a, I think it's a bit of a strange thing right now about who's keeping busy and maybe there's a sense of insecurity that we might uh, project onto others or project onto ourselves about keeping busy or, you know, yeah, totally. I think there's a lot of pressure around it, isn't there? Yes, exactly that. Yeah. And I think it's pressure that we should alleviate from ourselves. Yeah. Well, um, it's great to hear that you've managed to uh, feel good about how you're spending your time. Yeah. The, especially what's keeping me busiest is, uh, well, writing for theater and film, but especially with the theater, um, at least in Canada, it's nice to see that so many of the companies across the country are still uh, able to facilitate and support even financially uh, mm. somehow, even though I guess pretty much every company has, you know, challenges with finances right now um, in live performance, but they're still able to make it a priority to support artists with a bunch of projects. And and that is why I've been keeping busy is um, a lot of little projects and, and, and series uh, like the seismic shift series at touchstone um, you know there these companies are still um, finding a way to support artists and create new work so uh, I mean I'm grateful for that and uh, I'm happy that many uh, other theater artists are able to you know stay busy somehow to just keep doing what you know keeps them happy 
Yeah, absolutely. That, it's great to hear that that's possible and that that's happening. Um, that was a concern of mine at the beginning of the pandemic. Like, how were artists going to sort of adjust and how, how were uh, production companies going to survive and all of that? So that's really great to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then again, uh, for any artists who are not feeling inspired or not having the avenue to create work right now or get the work out there, um, I, I send support in terms of, you know, uh, it, I, I'm an optimist. I do know that we'll get back to some level of comfort in the near future <laughs> in yeah. due time. And uh, at least with, well, I do think with art in general, I think the demand is just pen getting pent up to where when we're finally able to gather together, especially live and at concerts and theater and dance and opera and all the things that require a live audience, mm -hmm. I think it'll be big. Uh, not right away, but eventually, because like, we're thirsting for this. I, I, you know, to gather and experience live performance is elemental to human beings, and I, I, I would say, uh, a, a common connection of all cultures is some kind of communion and community to experience an event live together in the moment, and we need to do that. And um, it'll come back in a big way when we're all comfortable. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that time. And until then, hey, whatever, whatever keeps us, keeps us alive, you know, even if it's not a creative output. Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that as well. Very mm -hmm. hopeful, definitely. Um, now, you mentioned Touchstone Theatre. Yes, yes. Uh, for uh, for I, I Know I'm Supposed to Love You, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit about that. Would I call it a production? Yeah. A play? A performance? Yeah, yeah. I think every yeah every word that you can use to describe it applies because it's a a hybrid form of many things and of of many types of uh, of mediums. Yeah, I wanted to say uh, I really love the name, by the way. Thank you. But I wanted to ask you. Um, I personally am just really curious. We've been talking a bit about uh, pandemic adjustments. How has uh shift to sort of virtual workspaces, I guess, uh, affected your workflow and the final product of this production? Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of uh, I Know I'm Supposed to Love You, well, uh, for, for listeners who haven't watched it, it's uh, about a 20 minute, 20, 23 minutes, I, uh, if I recall, hybrid theater video online uh, production uh, produced by Touchstone Theatre as part of their Seismic Shift program, uh, where they've invited artists to produce solo works uh, that are uh, well, it, it examines the process of creating work in isolation um, uh, uh, for theatre artists primarily. And so my piece, it is theatre. But on video, and we shot it pretty much like any film, TV, video project, you know, with, uh, well, uh, uh, the total people in the space in the bathroom. It's set in a, in, in a bathtub, uh, having a bubble bath. Uh, yeah. So it was Daniela Atiencia, the director and, uh, Zach Whitcomb, our, uh, every, everything person, one person crew. Uh, he handled the, the, the sound recording, the camera, the lights, editing, everything. And I was the writer and performer. Um, so just three of us. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. You, that, you know, if anyone peeked their head into our, our, 
bath bathtub set. Uh, it would look like, oh, they're shooting an indie film. So that was kind of the new way of looking at things. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Good on you for being able to adjust, I guess, and do what you can. It's kind of exciting to hear you talk about it because it's, I mean, you've been forced to, I guess, but it's such a transformation of the way that we uh, both produce and consume art. Mm -hmm. It's quite incredible. Um, So thank you for doing what you can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, thanks for, I mean, even even talking to me, having me join you for this, uh, you know, this conversation is lovely because we're getting the word out there about I, I I think a lot of people who are not regular theater audiences might not really have insight into how we're dealing with it. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So, so the, I mean, I'm sure because even if you just put on the news and hear about all the closures of Broadway and any, you know, any, any city that has a live performance community and knowing that we can't gather, I think a lot of them, and then of course, hearing that, uh, the live performance and artists in general, uh, industries are hit especially hard with, you know, and, and could use some financial assistance in various ways. And so maybe the uh, population at large might assume that it's kind of a dead industry at the moment and uh so so you know people like you who are having conversations on the airwaves and in in the media are uh sharing the word that no we're still creating stuff and absolutely um, yeah so so I'm, I'm thankful that that we're still talking about it and uh giving something to the audiences still and and creating you know media discussions about yeah it's there's still theater going on there's still live performance and it's just a bit different right now but we're we're making it happen still i love the way you put that um and i think people listening to this it reminds people but it also gives them hope as well right Mm -hmm, absolutely um but i i do want to go back to your show because i'm loving this conversation we're talking about theater and and progress and everything but i want to ask you about uh i know i'm supposed to love you can you tell me a little bit about what it what it is without spoiling too much for people who haven't seen it yeah yeah well uh it starts with a a (laughs) <laughs> a man who resembles me in many ways. Uh, I am the uh, actor in it. Um, but so, but it is a character. So I will speak in the third person about uh, the character. Uh, he is sitting in a, a big bubble bath and deep in thought, contemplative and eating a can of beans. <laughs> I, I'll maybe describe that more later, or you could just watch it and see what I'm talking about. Um, and he's uh, deep in thought contemplating the uh, idea of love in his family with his parents, his sisters and niece and nephews. And he's considering how having a child, his own child, becoming a parent uh, would affect the family dynamic um, because he's considering where his love goes. This character does not have any kids. So that's why he starts wondering. And he... He's thinking about he has tons of love to give, but limited directions for where his love can flow, being that he uh, the character is single, uh, does not have any dependence at all. And so he has as he's contemplating this, he has an epiphany to record a message to his future possible child to talk about love in this family. And as he's recording this message, 
he comes to another epiphany about how love functions in his family. And the way this love functions in this family is heavily informed by him being a Chinese immigrant uh, from East Van in Canada. It's meta, if that's why it sounds like <laughs> I'm talking in a circuitous manner. It's a meta piece. The the sort of themes that I'm hearing coming through sound like they would touch a lot of people. Yeah, I... I've received really warm, wonderful feedback uh, because this this has hit audiences in a very personal way. And what I mean by this is the feedback I've received when people have sent me messages and responded to it is often in paragraph form. Uh, yes, and I'm really happy to hear that this piece resonates with people in such a um, intimate manner for them that they feel comfortable sharing with me aspects of their own family experience. Yeah, absolutely. This reminds me, you have a really uh, great quote that I've, I've written down in my notes here that was included in some information I was given uh, before this. Uh, do you mind if I read it? Please do, please. So it says, although this project is rooted in my own life, I'm indeed playing a character. It's the best way for me to be honest with enough distance to be critical. This thing is pretty meta. Um, and, and I wanted to say that because I think it's just brilliant the way you phrase that. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this. Was it challenging for you to be so personally integrated with the character that you're playing? Or was it maybe easier given the inspiration was so close to your heart? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was actually uh, kind of a challenge. And I don't mean a challenge as in uh, it was not a torturous experience for me to write it. Like I didn't go through agony writing it, uh, although, maybe, you know, but, but, but if I did, then I think it would be justified because I am actually uh, uh, mining a lot of my own personal experience and there is discomfort in it for me. But uh, the challenge for me was actually a more in the uh, creative execution of it in that. Um, it's rooted in my own experience of, uh, I was born in Guangzhou and, uh, my family, uh, we immigrated to Canada, uh, when I was a baby East fan, I'm a hardcore East fan kid through and through, even though I, uh, I, I just live in other places, but, uh, East fan is where I am right now, by the way, as we're speaking. Um, and so this Chinese immigrant East Van experience and my own personal limitations with Cantonese uh, are the lifeblood of this piece. And I didn't want this to be an autobiographical thing. I did want it to be like it's a character, uh, even though some of the ideas or most of the ideas in it and the background of this character are from my own life. Uh, I don't have all I don't share the same perspective in every way as this character. But I, I, I started writing the first draft with some concept of um, what does this character think? And then as I gave it more details, I realized now it sounds like I know I'm going to be acting in it. I, like We already decided that right from the get go that I'll be the actor. And so it seems like, OK, people might mistake it for being the, OK, it's Norman speaking. It's not a character. It's just Norman in a bathtub telling his life story. And then I realized, OK, if that if people might mistake that. Or assume that's not a mistake. It's just it's it's easy to assume. It's just me after all. Um 
then they might then if I give this character too much fictional background, then I feel that's actually kind of misleading, disrespectful, something that I'm not comfortable with about my actual real family. And I didn't want to create a fiction then about my family. You know, if people assume that's me sitting in the bathtub telling my life story, but I'm creating a fiction with something so personal, then it's it's misrepresentative of my family. So I decided, well, I guess I'm going to go all in and be more honest, in fact, and open and more vulnerable and examine my actual experience. Again, it's not, you know, a one to one ratio of my own life with his character. But I just felt like, you know, I, I, I'm going to go honest. This is my family experience. But I wanted that uh, separation from that character and my own life in that uh his views about actually i'm not even sure what his views are he's actually just going through a process of coming to views uh about a parent and being a child having his own child being a brother that kind of stuff um i wanted to be able to be critical about what he's experiencing so i needed some separation and again uh what he says and what he thinks about during the piece during the the 23 minutes uh, are not exactly what I'm thinking about. I'm not in the same life position that this character is in. I'll say that. So automatically there's some distance. Uh, what he, the position he is in is not exactly my current position at all, actually right now. So, but I would like to also preface it with this. The idea of having a child, of being a parent is something that I've been thinking about in a philosophical manner uh, for years now. Uh, not to say I'm desiring having kids, I don't know. And that's the whole point of this is it's the question for me is not, and the question for the character is not, do I want to be a parent? It's more, why would I want to be a parent? That's the heart of this piece is why. A way that I can actually succinctly kind of say, uh, who I am versus the character yeah, in the, in the piece is that it's a, that the character is a version of me. And, uh, I, I, I've thought about it as it's like John Malkovich playing John Malkovich in being John Malkovich. Uh, but it's not really John Malkovich. It's a version of him. So that's the, the meta physicalness of all this. And yes, so the character is a version of me. Thank you for, uh, yeah, getting into that. I would love to watch this. Um, how can I? If I want to go and watch this, obviously I can't go and sit in an audience. Um, so how can I access? Mm -hmm. um, well, the the first place to go uh, would be Touchstone Theatre's website, and it's touchstonetheatre.com. And it's theater, uh, R E, not E R, if anyone knows what I'm talking about. And yes, it's called I Know I'm Supposed to Love You. Great, sweet, easy as. Amazing. Okay, cool. Uh, okay, well, thank you so much, Norman. Oh, thank you, Phoebe. A pleasure. Yeah, I hope you have a great evening. Yes, thank you. You too, also. And thank you for your interest and uh, having a conversation with me about this. I totally appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. It was definitely my pleasure. I, I loved hearing you explain everything. It's actually, I, I deliberately didn't watch this beforehand um, mm. because I don't know. I feel like if I know if too much, then mm -hmm. I, uh, I'm less curious, if that makes sense. I'm even more excited now, <laughs> basically. 
I, I love your approach. Uh, that's how I watch. Uh, I prefer watching the, uh, the, uh, theater and films uh, without I don't even I don't care about the synopsis. It's about the the artists involved and other aspects about the show that draw yeah. me to it. I don't even want to know the synopsis because I want to just, you know, uh, get, make it as fresh an experience as possible. Exactly. So uh, I support uh, I support the way you're uh, entering this project. So uh, if you get a chance to watch it, uh, thank you. And I, I hope you enjoy it oh i'm off to watch it right now mm, right awesome. now <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that i think that's it awesome well thank you phoebe you have a great evening thanks you too without the help and support of our friends we here at citr wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music art cinema and culture that you love thanks to the long-standing support from the rio theater we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. To prevent the spread of coronavirus 2019, or COVID-19, social distancing and self-isolation measures have been recommended. Here are some tips for managing your mental health while working from home, in self-isolation, quarantined, having to be home due to loss of employment, or just having to be home more than usual, according to at Counseling for All Seasons on Instagram. Try to create a structure or routine for your day. Structure helps us feel a sense of normalcy and control, and this is especially important during a time with a lot of unknowns. Routines do not have to be about productivity. Take a nap, go for a walk, or read a book. Remember to have regular meals and hydrate. This can add to a regular routine, and both of these can contribute to mood changes. If it's possible, get outside. If it's possible, get outside or open your windows. Fresh air and natural light can be beneficial to mental health. Don't be afraid to go outside. Just make sure you're observing basic social distancing. Stick to a sleep routine. Both lack of sleep and excess sleep can increase anxiety and depression. Keep up with personal hygiene and chores. Skipping personal hygiene routines can affect our moods, so try to shower, etc., even though you're not going out. Keeping your space tidy and clean can help with mental health, but it'll also contribute to preventing the spread of COVID-19. It's two birds, one stone. Remember to connect with loved ones. We might not be able to see people face to face, but that doesn't mean that those relationships are any less meaningful or important. Connection is vital to our mental health, especially in times that can feel full of despair. Hello everyone, today I'm here with Susie Leblanc, who is a Canadian soprano, early music specialist, and educator. She is the first ever female artistic and executive director of Early Music Vancouver. Hi Susie, first of all, Happy New Year. Um, how are you doing? Uh, hi Sarah, uh, Happy New Year to you too. I'm, I'm really well. I'm Happy to be in Vancouver, where the uh, weather is a bit milder than in Montreal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is definitely much better than Montreal, I feel like, <laughs> when it comes to weather. I've never been to yeah. Montreal. Okay, um, to start off, I want to ask you what pushed you to accept and or apply to be the Artistic and Executive Director of EMV, because it's quite different from your previous experience as an artist. 
It is, it is. Um, you know, I was a little bit uh, surprised. I, it hadn't occurred to me. You know, I, I heard that Matthew White was was going uh, to other pastures and was going to lead Victoria Symphony. And it never really clicked that somebody would have to take over. Yeah. And uh, so I got the call from the headhunter. And suddenly at that moment, I just started to think about what Early Music Vancouver had meant to me in my life. And realized how strong a relationship I had with the organization over the last 35 years because I did my first concert for Early Music Vancouver in 1984, mm -hmm. which really uh, launched my whole career. So I kind of thought this will be a really interesting process, even if nothing comes of it. But the more I got involved in it, the more I thought about it, the more I saw that it could be a really good fit. Um, and that it was coming at the right time in my life where I feel like I I could give back in some mm -hmm. way and that I'd had a long career and I could uh, enjoy maybe listening to my colleagues rather than always being the one that's on stage. So <laughs> it kind of felt like very exciting, very challenging, but that a lot of the things I've done in my life was leading me to be able to do this. And sometimes I always wondered if I was too spread, if I was interested in too many different things rather than just performing. Mm -hmm. And often it felt odd, but I guess now it's making sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how do you think your experience as an artist will play into your experience in your new position at EMV? Um, well, obviously, just my my taste and my contacts, uh, what what music I've I've done over the years, and what I think people will enjoy, what what kind of programming I want to do. I've always been really interested in programming things that are connected to the places and connected to other art forms, visual mm -hmm. uh, literature. So probably the signature that I'll give to the organization is going to be a lot similar to what I did as an artist. Um, and I think also it's it's interesting, like Matthew White was also a singer. Uh, mm -hmm. You can understand the artist. You've been on on their side, and 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 you know it's it's uh, maybe an asset to to being able to deal with with artists. But um, obviously, I guess my contacts, my passion, yeah. and uh, and my my thirst for discovery, which I've always had. <laughs> that's that's really um, nice. Do you think you will? Um still perform during or after um, your position at EMV? Do you, is that a possibility in your future or do you think that's just a closed chapter in your book? I don't think it's a closed chapter. It's a changing chapter though. Mm -hmm. uh, there's certainly no way that I have the time that I had before to go off and perform. Um, at the same time, the, uh, the EMV board has definitely expressed the, the wish that I don't stop uh, mm -hmm. and that once in a while I can I can be performing even for Early Music Vancouver uh, once in a while. I am actually, I was already booked to perform in the digital concert series that it's coming up in the winter. So I have a Ooh. performance that I'm recording in April yeah. and that was way before I got this position. So <laughs> it's kind of fun, you know. Yeah. Uh, I perform with my ex-colleagues from Montreal Ensemble Constantinople um, so and I, I will have a performance with the VSO as well in April that's going to be online so I think a little bit of performing is still possible I just have to you know be careful yeah. to uh, 
stamina aspect of it. And, and I have started conducting before, like in the last two years. So that's something that I could also eventually do. It's just something I'm going to, you know, not insist upon immediately because I need to get my feet, you know, firmly into the position first. But, mm -hmm. uh, but I see that it's possible. I think a lot of artistic directors around the world in other companies and theater companies sometimes direct to play. And so mm -hmm. there's no reason why I can't once in a while perform as well. Yeah, that's very true. And what's the most important thing for you as the new artistic and executive director? Mm, the question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think that early music Vancouver has been a leader in its field for mm -hmm. 50 years. It's, it's been a wonderful organization. And I take this new role that I'm taking on very seriously to continue that, uh, continue what, what, to build on what's there already. But we do live in a world that is changing and that needs to change. Mm -hmm. And so in my own voice, I, I want to um, bring music to people the way that, um, that we have done, but also look for new partnerships where we can be more of a voice for all sorts of important issues the world is facing right now, the mm -hmm. environment crisis, the equity, diversion, inclusion issues. And so, I, I feel that this organization is part of the cultural fabric of Vancouver mm -hmm. and I'm new here so I'm just going to have to find out a lot of things about Vancouver but it's important to me that AMV continues to really be a strong partner in the community and that we can grow this role and um, uh, use the resources that are here and, and participate um, as a producer, as a presenter. It's important for me that we nurture the musicians that live here mm -hmm. and that we also help grow the next generation of musicians interested in early music. Uh, like EMV has a mentorship program with UBC. It's called BOMP, Baroque Orchestra Mentorship Program. Oh, I did not know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's actually a, a, so the, a Baroque Orchestra at UBC made of students and there's actually a performance going to be released digitally this winter. I'm, I'm afraid I don't know the exact date yet, mm -hmm. but so it's already been recorded. And so that's a fantastic program and I think I'd like to build on, on the relationship with UBC. We also do concerts at Green College mm -hmm. uh, that UBC people go to. So I think um, a lot of that and I personally what I like is bringing new works to life and bringing old works that have been somehow left in the shadows to life like mm -hmm. works by women works by composers that somehow were in the shadow of a, a better known composer um i'm interested in the music of nuns because in the 17th century in italy uh, in the convents nuns who suddenly saw their lives being changed overnight when they decided that nuns would be cloistered yeah uh, so they're living some they were living something that we are living now in many places in the world of suddenly not being able to go outside yeah. and normally and they were incredibly resilient and they composed music and they performed it within their convents and it was it's such a high quality of music that it was one of the biggest tourist attraction at the time in Ooh. Italy. It attracted people from all over Europe. And so they must have been very good at what they were doing. And so mm -hmm. I think that's really exciting to bring that, you know, back to concerts. Um, so there's there's lots, there's yeah. so much to do about discovering all the indigenous music in BC that I don't know much about. And I'm really fascinated to find out more about that. So... 
Mm-hmm. Lots to do. Yeah, um, it sounds really interesting. Um, the things that you're interested in and wonderful and talking about um, indigenous art and voices. I read that you mentor um, young indigenous artists. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this mentorship, um, about the reason that you started doing this and what you do as a mentor. Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you. It was actually during the uh, confinement, the first confinement. I was in Montreal, you know, like Mm -hmm. everybody else, wondering what to do and how to earn a living and how to fill my time. And, and uh, so I put out an ad on Facebook that I was going to give singing lessons. And the first person to sign up uh, was then living in Alberta. And he's a wonderful baritone bass singer called Jonathan Adams, Mm -hmm. who uh, is a Cree Métis. And um, he is also an early music specialist. So that was amazing. He had been living in Europe and he performed in Europe a lot with really good uh, early music groups there. And he wanted to continue to take lessons and, and, you know, get feedback. It's always hard as a singer to work by yourself because you don't actually hear yourself the same way other people hear you and you just need it outside ears. So I said, I'll do that with you. And so we started online. And then eventually he moved to Montreal uh, in the fall and we continued our work there. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he was really just rediscovering his heritage, his roots, uh, because, uh, well, I don't want to say too much because it's his private life, but, yeah. uh, you know, recognizing his indigenous, indigenous roots. And um, so he worked, he built a beautiful project that links early music to a character in his um uh, history called Nipahimiu, mm-hmm. uh, which means the woman who never sleeps. And he took a piece by Purcell, which is called The Plaint, in which somebody complains of the loss of a lover. But he's decided to translate that into a woman who cannot get to sleep and she complains because her children were taken away um, in residential schools. So uh it's it's really quite moving the whole project the whole way he's conceived of it so i'm mentoring him through his early music practice and his singing but also uh a little bit involved in this project and what's really exciting for me is that the entire cast of this project um in terms of like the costume designer and the the stage person um it, they're all indigenous i'm the only white person uh in the director's team which is a real huge honor, yeah. and um, and so I'm I'm hoping to bring this production to Vancouver mm-hmm. because uh, it's it's really really it, it links early music to the indigenous uh, culture in a beautiful way. So I'm very pleased that we that our paths crossed and and uh, he's someone that I can learn a lot from uh, because he's he's uh, very interested in the whole history and also how early music fits into it. Yeah, that sounds great. So, I hope I hope you'll be able to. Um, bring it to Vancouver and that we will be yeah. able to witness it. That sounds great. He's actually going to be here next week and we're going to, we're going to talk and, and about where we want to do it and all that. So oh. I think it's going to happen. Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh, that's great to hear. Mm. Um, yeah. And so going back to your job as the artistic and executive director a little bit, I want to ask, um, I know it's, you started on January 4th, right? So yes. it's very new, but I wanted to ask how it's going for you so far 
and how you think it's going to be. Um, yeah, just, I just wanted yeah. to ask, yeah. Yeah, well, it's been one week. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's mainly been just, well, meeting the staff that I'm working with for one and uh, meeting some of the board members in person. We'd only met on Zoom until now. Uh, you know, getting, you know, getting used to the, the way of working, uh, getting, reading a lot of documentation. But I have to say that um, I have an amazing situation. I'm very lucky. Matthew White, my predecessor, uh, was fantastic and left the organization in such a, a great, great position, mm -hmm. uh, both financially and in, in, in every way, so artistically as well. And the staff is really extraordinary. Um, they've been there, of course, much longer than I have, for sure. Some of them has been longer than Matt has been. Uh, so I'm at the moment relying heavily on, on what they can teach me to learn the ropes and to uh, mm. meet everyone that I need to meet. Um, everybody's been very welcoming so far. Uh, also, you know, leaders of other organizations in the city that I would really very, very looking forward to having conversations with, uh, some I have already. So I think the beginning, you know, the first thing to do is just to immerse myself here in what is going on and in how EMV is functioning and mm -hmm. also to start building the, the programs that are going to be coming up, even though it's not so easy to plan a season when there's COVID around still and you don't really know how things are going to evolve. So I think we're, we're planning um, things that can be very flexible in mm -hmm. case we have to do things online or in person and how many audience members will be able to have. So uh, there's a lot of that. What I'll say also is that Alex Weiman, who's the music director of Early Music Vancouver, I knew very well because he was living in Montreal before and he was actually the music director of a company I led there. Mm -hmm. So it's just a, a great joy to find him again and to be, you know, continuing uh, a lot of the conversations we've always had about what we want to do musically. Mm -hmm. uh, so um there's some some things are known to me here and mm -hmm. some things are completely new so it's it's going well but it's really early to tell what the <laughs> you know what challenges are going to be and i'm just yeah. grateful for all the help i'm getting at the moment yeah well it sounds really exciting it's always um fun to learn new things and your connection with emb i feel like um should make it even better and yeah maybe There's also there's also the, the the beauty of the nature around here that that I'm discovering, which I you know love dearly. Mm -hmm. I'm a big nature lover, so that's also exciting to me. Also, is how I, how to create programs that can link music and nature and things like that. So yeah, nature definitely. Vancouver, British Columbia. It's you're yeah. immersed with nature. It's yeah. very inspiring. Yeah. yeah, and so before we say goodbye, I would like to ask you if there's anything you would like to add or to say to the audience, just anything you want to mention. Uh, well, actually, just one thing that honestly, when, when it was announced that I was taking over, I had a, a flood of really beautiful messages from everybody, all the musicians that have worked here and, and some of the donors and everything, and I just... I want to say how incredibly warming that was and how mm -hmm. welcoming I it felt. Uh, and so I don't think I could begin in better circumstances. And I just want to thank everybody who, who expressed their, their 
joy that I was the next leader and, and their confidence in me. That's it means a great, great deal. That's very sweet. That's really lovely. Well, thank you so much, Susie. I'm I'm sure you're gonna do great as the the first ever female artistic and executive yeah. director of EMV. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. And well, lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, have a nice day. I'm sorry, it's 1 a.m. here. Yeah. I don't know how to speak. Yeah, 1 a.m. for you. Well, have a nice sleep. <laughs> Thank you so much. And with that sleepy interview, that's the end of our show. This has been the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope to see you next Wednesday right here at 5 p.m. It's going to be great. Have a nice day.